0: Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast put on by three dudes who work at a classical school. That feels like a good intro. It's highly accurate. I mean, the, all of those parts are true. Yeah, I feel good about this. I am joined, as always, by A.J. Hannenberg That is this voice that you are hearing. This voice that you are hearing. Not the person, but the voice you are hearing is A.J. Hannenberg. What? Oh, metaphysics. Yeah. And also joining us is the voice of Graham Donaldson. Hi. Okay, that is accurate. Hey, uh, today Graham Donaldson is going to be talking about uh, his favorite book, The Green Book. Uh, really excited <laughs> to dive into a uh, uh, discussion of waterfalls mm-hmm. and uh, sickness. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Graham, uh, tell me about why I should feel sick when I look at waterfalls.
1: I, excellent, excellent. Thanks. I will. Um, so, if you since you clicked on the podcast, you know that we are talking about the abolition of man, which were three lectures given by C.S. Lewis um, on the subject of education, um, sentiments, uh, emotions, and, and basically paideia, or, or the type of, of classical education, or the type of education where you are bringing people up not only to do skills, like writing uh, an argument, logic, but also bringing people up in terms of sentiments um, and uh, basically cult- enculturating the young um, bringing the young to be like the members of the society around you. You could even call
2: it indoctrination. Like, it's a, isn't it a word that comes with negative connotations?
1: It does. But yeah. You are
2: being indoctrinated one way or the other. There is a doctrine,
1: and, and the doctrine is, be, is being, uh, is being um, uh, transmitted to you. And Lewis, in one of these essays, actually the one we're going to be talking about today, talks about ways where that can be done in a kind of sketchy, feels like a propaganda way, and then also in a, uh, a wholesome or natural propagating way, like how your parents indoctrinate you uh, to become adults. They they give you doctrine. They, ma- they eat your vegetables. Exactly. It's a great doctrine. Um, it's a fantastic doc- doctrine. Um, be nice to, to old eat people. Vegetables. Yeah, be, be, yeah. Be, ni- be nice to old people. That's a good one. Um, These kinds of things, uh, There's. Uh, it's not just an arbitrary thing. Or, or Lewis is going to argue, and I believe as well, that these aren't... These sentiments are not just these arbitrary things. Anyway, a little bit about the structure of these talks. Um, There were three lectures um, on this topic, and the first one is called Men Without Chests. The second talk is called The Tao or The Way. And then the third talk is called The Abolition of Man. If I'm not mistaken, they were given mid-war, World War II. I think they were presented Mm -hmm. in 1943— So in '43, the battle for uh, London, the 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 Blitzkrieg um, was was finished. Uh, The tide was turning. Uh, Russia was on the front foot. Germany was on the back foot. Uh, Everyone sort of knew that eventually um, there was going to be some sort of invasion of Europe. So yes, although it was given in the war, it was given after maybe uh, after the biggest scary part for England was done, Mm. and it was kind of at that point obvious that england was probably not or was not going to be invaded
2: yeah then the flower of nazism
1: had bloomed and then begun to wilt that's right um, so lewis is giving these that was, that's, oh, that was that's beautiful really, that's that was good yeah. Yeah. thank you yeah. yes. english teacher yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's too, like that, too bad it was about nazis yeah, yeah. that was, kind of a bummer. <laughs> that was yeah. yeah um so lewis is giving these talks and he's and and t- as his um, conceit, or as as his starting point, he talks about a book that he has on his shelf, um, and this is a great shoot. I was uh, I wrote this down. Do you, want um, the, do you want the name of it? No, I know the name no. of the book. I was thinking that this is his argument is a great example of either induction or deduction. Where do you start from an example and work to a big conclusion? Uh, induction. Yeah. So this is a great example of inductions where Lewis is taking an example. Here's this book I have on my shelf. He has nothing good to say about this book, so he gives it a pseudonym called um, uh, The Green Book. Can I read you that paragraph? It's actually kind of funny. Go for it.
2: That intro. So, this is the very beginning of his lecture talk. It's the, the very first beginning of chapter one. I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary textbooks. That is why I have chosen as the starting point for these lectures a little book on English intended for, quote, boys and girls in the upper forms of schools, end quote, I do not think the authors of this book, there were two of them, intended any harm, and I owe them or their publisher good language for sending me a complimentary copy. At the same time, I shall have nothing good to say of them. Yes. Here is a pretty predicament. I do not want to pillory two m- modest practicing schoolmasters who were doing the best they know, but I cannot be silent about what I think the actual tendency of their work. I therefore propose to conceal their names. I shall refer to these gentlemen as Gaius and Titius, and to their book as the Green Book. But I promise you there is such a book and I have it on my shelves. Which is
1: a great paragraph. Yeah, Just,
2: yeah I love that he's like I really like thanks to those guys for
1: sending me the book but they're I really the worst. Do not like yeah. It. yeah. 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 Bad and book. it makes you want to read more and I'm actually going to be using that intro paragraph as my teaching tool for how to write an introduction. Hmm. Not it's not comprehensive but it is an example of a good introduction. Um, Anyway, I, can I ask what about it? Like, Oh, it generally introduces the topic. So he's going to be taught. You don't know at, specifically what it is, but he hints at it. He's going to be talking about um, the way that English stud- English is taught to upper form girls and boys. So that would be high school, essentially. Um, and he's going to say that um, things are being taught that haven't been necessarily thought through. And um, and that it actually can cause harm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then... And then he talks about concealing the book, so he's and not completely introducing the topic, but yeah. he's 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 starting off the uh, the induction.
2: So you're you yeah. So there's two different kinds of writing. Deductive mm-hmm. is where you sort of begin with a the thesis mm-hmm. and then break it down, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And
1: then inductive is where you sort of work your way up to the big punch at the end. Which... And in, in these lectures, there's a punch at the end of each of the lecture, and then the third. Abolition of Man chapter is itself sort of like the big punch of the whole three lectures.
0: And you two teach this book, right? We
1: have taught it in senior English in the past. AJ did not teach it in senior English last year because we did not get to it last year. And it
2: it is, I think, probably beyond... I don't know. The seniors have t-
1: gotten tended to, to get it.
2: No, no, no. It's. I think it's beyond anybody below seniors. Oh, yes. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. Even as a college student, mm-hmm. I, I have to admit, like I read this and maybe, maybe, really got twenty mm-hmm. percent of it. Only like teach reading it and then rereading it and teaching it and then mm-hmm. rereading it again has enabled me to get the whole thing.
0: Yeah, and so I, I've only read the first chapter of these three chapters, knowing that we were going to talk about it today, and so I read it for the first time last night, and it's great. I. I uh, I, I hope we say this again, but I cannot recommend enough that anyone who teaches high schoolers, I, I, I find at least this first chapter very helpful. Yes. I've not read the second and third year. It's, it's a must read, I it's think,
1: for any classical educator. I went to college, university, and I was doing a specialist degree, so that's more than a major, in philosophy in my first year and part of my second year. At some point, I read The Abolition of Man and understood it. I think I'd read it before I didn't understand it. I had read it and finally understood it, and I was satisfied intellectually, and I was like, oh, and all of a sudden, the rest of my philosophy classes, the questions they posed, I was like, no, I, I'm pretty satisfied with the answer that Lewis gave in The Abolition of Man to this particular question. <laughs> yeah. and I, I see your
2: existentialism, but, but, and I'm good. Yeah, I'm like, good I think it. I'm, I'm fine, good. I'm like, fine. I'm fine over it. here.
1: Do your thing, yeah. but I'm good. I don't need a beret. Yeah. Um, and
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> then why do you wear a beret <laughs> every recording <laughs> exactly. session? I don't, yeah.
1: Um, and so I changed my specialist to a philosophy minor. By then, I had mm. enough courses for a philosophy minor, oh, and I was really? like, I'm not doing this anymore. Wow. And I- So this was a big deal for And I took English as a major. Wow. Or, yeah, I I, I opted my literature component. Anyway, so Lewis says that in this book, he has, there's this particular chapter um, and it's talking about a famous scene in English literature. And the scene is um, where uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and somebody else um, are on a walk in the woods and they see a beautiful waterfall. And they have two different reactions to that waterfall. For Coleridge... The uh, the reaction was uh, for the, uh, was sublime. This waterfall pierces him with beauty. Maybe it wasn't Coleridge. Maybe it was Coleridge is was writing about these two tourists or whatever. And it pierces this man's heart with the beauty of the waterfall. And for the other guy, the other guy who works at the waterfall and is like, yeah, that's a pretty waterfall. <laughs> Snaps a photo. <laughs> he didn't snap a photo back Probably then. He would have, yeah. But he's like, oh, yeah, take a foot picture on his iPhone. And then off he goes to, to look at the next beautiful thing. Um, Coleridge, in his writing, appraises the first man for whom that waterfall um, struck a chord deep in his soul and doesn't condemn, but sort of says that the second man's reaction is less desirable. Um, you could even say less sophisticated, less civilized. I mean, it depends on how far you want to take the argument. But the writers of this English book say this about that particular episode. So this is a quote from the Green Book. When the man said... That is sublime. He appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. When what he was saying was really, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime. Or shortly, I have sublime feelings. Um, and uh, they add, this confusion is continually present in language as we use it we appear to be saying something very important about something and actually we are only saying something about our own feelings that's scary so the lewis has re- is sitting here reading this book and this is the sort of a throwaway paragraph not a throwaway paragraph but a paragraph in the book that is talking about what is happening in the hearts of people when they make value statements about things outside the, of themselves outside of yeah. themselves so any any object any Yeah. Yeah. Anything non-personal. According to the authors of the Green Book, was it Gaius and Titius? according to them, when you make a value statement about something, you are only making a statement about yourself, a feeling that you have, as opposed to be making a statement about the worth or merit of the thing you're talking about. And for Lewis, he's like, Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's take that kernel, that little idea. And see if that sort of bears up to scrutiny, and is and what we get if we take that kernel or that idea um, too far.
0: Be- because there's also this, like, you have to have a certain view of the world to make that statement, and they haven't they haven't given you those introductory statements. They just kind of throw out. It is kind of a throwaway paragraph in the middle, but mm-hmm. there's a depth to it that even the authors aren't acknowledging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what is that depth? That there's no there's nothing. Um, um, objective in what's outside of myself, that there's no right response to the waterfall. So, he, the, he actually says,
2: the schoolboy who reads this passage in the Green Book will believe two propositions, and I, so I think these, mm-hmm. these are the two propositions of the Green Book. Firstly, that all sentences containing a predicate of value are statements about the emotional state of the speaker. And secondly, that all such statements are unimportant. So, we cannot predicate a value judgment right about something with and, and have it be anything except an expression of our own emotional state that's
1: just like your
2: opinion man exactly right. <laughs> and and that any anytime you do that it's unimportant mm-hmm. so saying you that a waterfall is sublime is not only not a statement about the waterfall it's a statement about you and not only that it's, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter mm-hmm. it's a
1: non-mattering thing because it's just your own thoughts on the yeah. waterfall yeah there's nothing worth yeah, um, and so, and, and yeah, the, uh, Lewis says that no schoolboy is going to um, read those, those sentences from Guy and Tishis, um, and they're going um, to be, uh, they're going to focus in on the fact that when they say, we are only saying something about our own feelings, that is going to be the thing that the schoolboy, the schoolgirl latches on to, and they're like, oh, okay, when someone is making a statement of value, um, all they're making is a statement of emotion. And the word only is a devastating word, right?
2: He is only a schoolmaster is very d- a different sentence than he is a schoolmaster. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, okay, so then I guess we can be talking... We can be... Talk- we can be- framing the Gaius and Titius model, although it's probably unfair to whoever Gaius and Titius were, they probably, maybe they did strongly hold to this philosophical belief, but the way Lewis presents it in the abolition of man is he just kind of assumes that they are being swept along with kind of the current culture of talking about feelings. And this is, this is just the current culture of talking about predicates of value as, as emotional statements. Um, Isn't that where he gets to eventually where he assumes that they
0: think higher things of, culture but um they kind of have to work around it philosophically
1: yeah um but so maybe we don't need to be criticizing guys and tissues but we can be criticizing the the philosophy that yeah. does hold this strongly yeah. uh, and, and emotivism i think is i think is what it's called yeah. uh, people call it an emotivism yeah. how i feel yeah uh this
0: also um, is brought out in in ethics um during the enlightenment that when i make an ethical statement i'm just making a statement of preference mm-hmm. so yeah
1: Yes. Um, so the, we can maybe call that the more modern or yep. uh, definitely the sort of in vogue, this emotivism that my emotional response to the thing is the value judgment of the thing. Yeah. And I still, I, that's still in vogue, I think. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Versus what I guess we could call either the classical or the traditional um, way, which is saying that certain things merit certain responses, regardless of. So if one individual person comes and does not have that emotion associated to it, um, it's not their emotion that that is the driver of the of the conclusions about the thing. They're mistaken. <laughs> their feelings right. about it are wrong. Um, the thing itself uh, merits certain kinds of emotions or values uh, associated with it. That was maybe an abstract way to say people who laugh at funerals are 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 wrong. Are wrong. Yeah um, because a funeral, uh, merits, uh, gravity. Um, gravity.
0: Um, yeah, I guess we, we touch on the towel a little bit later in this chapter. And again, having not read the second chapter, I, I assume he goes more into it there. Mm-hmm. I just wonder like how we talk about, so we would say there are objectively right and wrong ways to react to things, but how do we get, how do we know that? How do we know what those right and wrong ways are? And even if you look across history, that has changed, um, yeah, that's changed over time.
1: Yeah, he's got a pretty nifty answer for how it's changed over time um, in the second chapter, which is, um, um, there's no reason why we don't get to it today if we can. Um, but for the first one, how do we know? The answer uh, I think Lewis would give is that it's natural. That it's, yeah. it's a human thing. And... Um,
0: to it's, see the waterfall and see it as sublime.
1: Yeah, and, it's only people yeah. who are fighting against human nature by, by uh, concocting um, 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 bigger rational, uh, systematic frameworks of, of thought. Yeah. Um, um, in other words, I think Lewis would, would feel that like the uneducated farmer would understand the Tao a lot more than the sort of isolated eth- ethical uh, academic sure. or the person, the, the person who does uh, um, uh, academia in, in the school of ethics, because they are, they are creating a model and then trying to fit everything into that model. Whereas the quote unquote natural, um, I wouldn't even call it quote unquote, cause I do believe it. I believe it as well. So the natural way is the one that is sort of created in the hearts of human beings. Um but it needs to be cultivated. Yes. Um, so like a plant has all of everything that it needs in order to become uh, a tree that bears fruit. Uh, it does need to have some sort of cultivation. It needs to be in the right context. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be cared for, for that fruit to grow. Um, as opposed to um, um, this modern view says, um, well, the tree can sort of figure out whatever fruit wants. Yeah. And... Um,
2: and yeah. I think there's also something to be said for the natural object itself meriting mm-hmm. a response, mm-hmm. right? A waterfall merits a response of humbleness mm-hmm. and not a response of nausea. Mm-hmm. And, and you said that it's changed over time. I, I would argue that it's perhaps shifted slightly over time, but that the basic ways that we function and interact with the world are the same, right? It is not a widespread thing that when we see trees, we grow ill in the stomach, Right? We still enjoy the look and peace of nature. We still have humble feelings towards waterfalls. And when people point to rare instances where this has shifted, well, that the exception proves the rule, that the majority
1: of us feel a certain way about certain things, right? Um, we've been throwing around this word Tao, and I think it's helpful if we talk a little bit about Tao in order to, to continue talking about this. So when Lewis uses the word tau, what he means is he means the entirety of... Um, human, sort of, how can I explain it? Um, when he means Tao, he sort of means objective, not not just objective morality, um, but he means um, that, uh, those right sentiments about things. Um, so, um, the fact that when we see two friends helping each other, uh, and we're like, man, those are great friends, um, that kind of of uh, the fact that people look at a situation and say that is a right thing that is happening is because it is part of this Tao.
0: Can I... It, By all means. I find this an unhelpful paragraph, but mm-hmm. um, let me read it and see if it does anything. This is page eight in my copy. I don't know what it is in yours. else. Uh, the Chinese also speak of a great thing, the greatest thing called the Tao. It is the reality beyond all predicates, the abyss that was before the creator himself. It is nature, it is the way, the road. It is the way in which the universe goes on, the way in which... Things um, everlastingly emerge uh, stilly and, tranqui- and tranquilly, tranquilly, whatever, into space and time. It is also the way which every man should tread in imitation of that cosmic and supercosmic progression, conforming all activities to that great example. Um, and then there are a few examples he gives. The next paragraph, I'll just read two... I think it's two or three sentences. This conception in all its forms, Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, and Oriental alike, I shall henceforth refer to for brevity simply as the Tao. Some of the accounts of it which I have quoted will seem perhaps to many of you merely quaint or even magical, but what is common to them all is something we cannot neglect. It is the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things we are. So that... I find that first paragraph unhelpful because it feels woo-woo, mm-hmm. but um, what it's getting at is that across time, people have found things to be objective.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I think a lot of the ways why maybe us moderns, we dislike that is because we cannot fully 100% categorize all of it, um, that it is a lived experience as opposed to a a completely cataloged experience but but what he's saying is um the the way that human beings live and interact with the world and make value statements and the fact that we can go and look at the different codes and go back and actually there's a very helpful appendix at the back of um of uh most uh Uh, copies of the abolition of man where he goes and he finds the different law codes from babylon and greece and rome and the hebrew bible and he even pulls from things from taoism and ancient chinese and uh he even finds some anglo-saxon norman viking and uh, american native sayings and he says look here are all these places separated by place and time coming to generally similar conclusions about things so this is He is saying
0: this is probably the Tao.
1: Yes. Or maybe this is the Tao. This is the Tao. But the fact that, but they're not all, it's not all um, codified, but we're all sort of tapping into the same general conclusions about behavior. So, I mean, maybe examples are helpful. So the law of general beneficence, the law of special beneficence, duties to
0: parents, elders, ancestors, duties to children and posterity.
1: Yeah, so I even think examples are helpful. So do not murder comes from the ancient Jewish exodus. Which section is that? Um, Hmm? That is in the law of general beneficence. Okay. Terrify not men or God will terrify thee, is an ancient Egyptian. Um, uh, in hell I saw murderers, comes from the old Norse. I, um, I have not brought misery upon my fellows. I have not made the beginning of everyday laborists in the sight of him who worked for me. Ancient Egyptian. I have not been grasping ancient Egyptian. Um, who meditates uh, oppression, his dwelling is overturned, Babylonian. So you can kind of see that he's, he's looking at these old law codes or these old wisdom books, and he's seeing these common threads. Um, uh, later in the next chapter, he's going to talk about that different civilizations can improve upon those threads. So one example could be um, a don't do to people what you don't want done to you versus do to people what you do want done to you is an improvement on the on the general rule.
2: And also that societies can take specific qualities and blow them, overblow them, and sometimes to their detriment and the detriment of others. That's
1: right. So maybe ancient Sparta can uh, highly emphasize martial qualities, honor and warfare to the detriment of mercy, maybe even to the detriment of ju- uh, the concept of justice and to the detriment of... Of familial relations, for example,
2: and I would say that ours probably overblows the the quality of tolerance, where instead of promoting kindness, Mm -hmm. which I think is a higher human calling,
0: I think I've said that before. Yeah. So, uh, so there can be improvements, but there can also be um, overweighted
1: detriments.
2: Detriment, Mm -hmm. but they are all still. I'm not sure we'd find Mm -hmm. a society where kindness or tolerance or those things are.
0: Right, I think found disgusting. I think that's my yeah. My only point is that those emphases are changed over time. Definitely, but, yeah, yeah. I'm, but you're saying that all the same things are valued. So, so th- this is the example I usually
2: use, and I I actually brought this up in a conversation with a friend recently because he he had held prior to the conversation uh, that he was a relativist, and I think I'm what we call a universalist, which is I think there are universal values undergirding. Uh, but that's not a soteriology universalism yeah, that's what, out there. You, you that's, said that on a uh, recent podcast. But yeah. I was like, "Oh,
0: we should have talked about that." Oh, is that, a, What you do you mean? No, universalist universalism means that um, everyone can be saved, regardless of what you. Believe. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm
2: talking ethical values yeah. here. Different, different kind of universalism. Um, so there are values that undergird even the the various shifts, and those, and as those are acted out in society, can shift. But there is like we cannot even really conceive in a society where. Like a man eating his children because he is afraid, is applauded, yeah. right? Or or cowardice, like true cowardice, is promoted with the young. Like that's that is so alien to us that we cannot conceive of that thing. We can we can have people like say you should run away from battle, but the the to value undergirding that, life but it's to save life. your life or to save your family. It's not because cowardice is admirable, right? And and but like their things can shift, but those
1: mm-hmm. values are still the same. And even if we Created a society where we were like, oh yeah, well I'll show you. I'm actually going to, uh, by propaganda and indoctrination, raise our children to believe those inherently unnatural things about human nature. The argument uh, would go that something inside the heart of the child would feel like what they were getting from on high, and what their uh, and what their human nature is 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 in discord. Um, and, or even what
2: you'd make would not be a human as we know yeah. it. Yeah. Right. And you so know? this
1: is something that comes up a lot that I bring up in the book uh, Brave New World yeah. because they're doing that. They are putting human beings in an unnatural kind of position, and you have got all of these characters that are like, "Man, I just feel like this perfect world I live in kind of sucks." Yeah. Um, and and it does. And it I mean, does. I mean, yeah. and and uh, how many how many sort of th- you know sort of throwaway blog think pieces do we have about people talking about like our our. You know fast-paced technological world is making us miserable i mean uh, there's something to it about the unnaturalness of of what we're placing ourselves anyway um but to get back to his argument in in um so he's saying that in, this in the first Green chapter book, they are opposed to this idea of the Tao that there are no real
0: Objective things. It's just...
1: Maybe not strongly, but... Um, it's, an, it's an accident it's of in. teaching. Of it's right? an it accident is, of teaching. It is
2: easier to debunk a passage like that than to do the real work of education, which mm-hmm. is what C.S. Lewis says what they should have done was contrast that with another piece of... Mm-hmm. Like, he brings up another example where it's like an advertisement for Mm -hmm. sailing and it's like, you'll do this and it's really great. And you'll see sunsets and go where these other people have been. And then they debunk it and say, well, that's not necessarily true. It won't be that good. You'll be tired and it won't be great. And then he says, what they should have done is contrast that poorly written piece with a better written piece from literature and then show the difference of Mm -hmm. how one is better than the other. And that visiting places with true historical weight is actually an enjoyable thing for man, right? Visiting the, the field of Gettysburg, right? That's that's an important thing, right? Mm-hmm. There was a battle there, right? Battle of Gettysburg, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, like, visiting that field, you should feel something as a person, mm-hmm. right? Debunking it and saying, nah, it's just a field is, is like carving the heart out of man, whereas showing a well-written piece about that would be more advantageous with true English education.
1: And it is, as a teacher, it can be a little... Seductive to think that you are actually doing good work of education to turn your your students into sort of teaching them
2: into critical thinkers into
1: being quote critical thinkers is just synonymous with um, with cynical debunkers be like well look at that loser that believes something Uh, here are all the reasons why uh, that's lame Um, um, cool now that we've uh, now that we've you know shown how this person who passionately felt something is stupid. Now let's, you know, work on your SAT test prep or whatever. Um, And, um, and it is a lot harder um, to model and to show what, why a beautiful thing is beautiful.
0: This ties in really well with your wit episode too, right? Yeah. Being able to draw connections, build up instead of just tear down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. From this passage,
2: the schoolboy will learn about literature, precisely nothing. What he will learn quickly enough, and perhaps indelibly, is the belief that all emotions aroused by local association are in themselves contrary to reason and contemptible. He will have no notion that there are two ways of being immune to such an advertisement, that it falls equally flat on those who are above it and those who are below it, on the man of real sensibility and on the mere trousered ape who has never been able to conceive the Atlantic as anything more than so million, so many million tons of cold salt water. And so what the educators... Sorry, this is me again. Mm-hmm. What the educators are actually doing is making them into trousered apes that see a beautiful ocean and think, last ah, it's
1: just gallons of salt water mm-hmm. and then truck on their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stars are not this cosmic dance of God's providence and love, but are just balls of burning gas. Um, uh, I think there's something, um, to it. Well, the, whenever I say that students are like, yeah, but they are just balls of big burning balls of burning gas and they giggle because that's funny. Um, but, um, but also kind of not, that's why one of the
0: assignments they do here is to, um, I don't know exactly how the assignment goes, but it's to the effect of like listening to the sound made from the stars. And like, there is an actual song out Mm -hmm, there. mm -hmm. Um,
2: Yeah. There's, there's a great little passage on this to debunk the emotion on the basis of a commonplace rationalism is within almost anyone's capacity. So it's, so it's easy as a teacher Mm -hmm. to do this and to Mm -hmm. teach your students to do it and make them feel good about it. In the second place, I think Gaius and Titius may have honestly misunderstood the pressing educational need of the moment. They see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda They have learned from tradition that youth is sentimental, and they conclude that the best thing they can do is to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. My own experience as a teacher tells an opposite tale. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. Mm-hmm. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard
1: heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. That's right. So there may be a bit of a noble reason, but it's a misguided noble reason. So here, here's the, the conundrum. Um, human beings feel things, and human beings can be swayed by their feelings, and somebody who has a way with words can sway people to do things because of how they feel. Um, we have two options. Um, the right option, according to Lewis, and I would agree, is that we need to give, uh, we need to grow and educate the soul into feeling the right things about objects. That objects themselves merit feelings towards them. And um, in situations. In situations in, and yeah, and, yeah. and contexts and stories. Mm-hmm. Um, um well, we talked last episode about, or a couple episodes ago, about tragedy. Yeah. And um, if at the end of *Oedipus*, *Oedipus*, people were like, "Oh, that was an that was an amazing story," yep. and I just loved every moment. And uh, I I wish I was like *Oedipus* when I grew up and be like, "What's wrong with you, kid? Right. Like that is not that is a that is the wrong <laughs> you got the wrong reaction, but wrong reaction to that. <laughs> That's but, not it. Um, but. Uh, but people have said, "Oh gosh, people can be swayed by sentiment and reason." What we should do is teach them to completely eradicate all all sentiment and reason from having any weight or currency in their decisions. In yep. their decisions, which maybe could be helpful. If well, Lewis says actually, what you're doing is you're starving that faculty. So when someone comes and actually gives, gives them that. some, gives them a little taste of it, and they feel it, some p- some passion. They are, there's some passion. They are not going to be able to be able. Be able to understand that this passion is the wrong sentiment and they're going to be swept away with it. Um, it's like uh, we starve the person, and then when there's a little bit of food, you know, that can be. Dangerous to the to the the system right if you gorge mm-hmm. on food after you starve you could die so um so lewis says no we need to train people up in stable proper pro- stable sentiments proper sentiments as opposed to teach them to debunk all sentiments and he uses because it's a natural to the heart yeah he talks
2: about that same thing in the introduction to paradise lost mm-hmm. right that stable sentiments knowing that courage in the face of danger is befitting of man mm-hmm. right that um that respect to elders is appropriate for the young mm-hmm. that you know youth is passionate and maybe you should be guarded against your passion but don't miss it like mm-hmm. all of those are stable sentiments about the world and you have to build those up before you actually need them mm-hmm. right help those in need needs to be reinforced again and again and again before you see a woman being attacked in an alley mm-hmm. right yep. you cuz that's going to your your instinct there is going to be to run or to deny mm-hmm. help so when when we don't do that, we are endangering the souls of the student, right? Mm-hmm. When
0: we make them critical debunkers, mm-hmm. I think then this gets to the value of fiction to see examples like that, to then know what courage is, what justice is, what temperance, prudence, name your virtue. And you. then mean, also in in theater to see that acted out, no long not just to, I'm I'm thinking through the story and reading it myself, but actually to watch those things happen, um, it stirs a different emotion mm-hmm. in the person. I and, mean,
1: it's it's interesting even just to compare. The books that I grew up with, like the Hardy Boys, mm. I read all the Hardy Boy books, and you can com- compare the way that the Hardy Boys like deal with problems and people and situations to any modern graphic novel about a superhero who's like jaded and dark, <laughs> and the, and um, and you know is sort of angry Sometimes I and go too far. And I go too far, and Gotham gets what they deserve. But you know, it's for and justice. You know, and and we are t- teaching people that there is something more authentic about. The going too far in the jaded dark sentiments and that's how someone i mean this i've gone on the soapbox before on this and that the hardy boys are naive and stupid because they're good but i guess this is the complication because
0: like they could be right mm-hmm. they, they could be naive but mm-hmm. i don't know again the problem is not naivety it's um mm-hmm. people not caring yeah yeah, not,
2: not
1: everyone who is good is naive mm-hmm. and untaught. There it is. And, and not everybody I, who's tortured is like deep and and, crit- and, exactly. like, and strong th- a strong thinker. But I've
2: run into that even like in my own life. People assume that because I want to try to do good things that I just haven't had a taste of the bad ones. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. And I was also going to say about this, if, if this is the task of the educator to, to help to inculcate students or even, you know, to use a word that is a little bit pregnant with meaning, indoctrinate students with stable sentiments... Uh, those are not easily put into lesson plans. No. right. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I just finished doing our, you know, it's in service, so I just finished doing the how to write objectives for the day in your lesson plans. And there is almost no way to bring these into lesson plans. And so the movement of... Amplify charity. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the movement
2: of, of edu- education in general to tangible, measurable results mm-hmm. that, that happen day to day... Almost, it makes, makes it difficult to focus on these things. And mm-hmm. granted, like in math, it's a lot easier to have those tangible movements, right? That's that's a skill. And in English, we can do the same thing. So they'll be able to use active voice rather than passive voice. That's mm-hmm. something that we can measure. We can make that an objective. But it is so important that the teacher is the lesson, mm-hmm. right? The teacher is the the curriculum. And we've we've held that that the way that I react to certain things in books and the way that I encourage them to react and the questions that I ask them are going to have a lasting impact. And those are things that don't necessarily show up in lesson plans or on objectives Mm -hmm. or are measurable on a quiz. I can't say, if you see a woman in alley, what do you do on the quiz? And then if you answer wrong, you're right. Right? That's not- Yeah, you get a bad grade. That's not exactly something that pops into education in the exact same way, but it is probably worth our serious attention Mm -hmm. when dealing with students more so than some of those smaller skills, which they can pick up later if they need to.
1: Now, if you're a teacher listening to this and you, you've heard us maybe say a couple times over a number of podcasts that the teacher is the curriculum, and you're like, all right, so how do I model this? How do I be this for students? Unfortunately, the answer is a high calling. Um, so, what you got to <laughs> be it yourself, you got to right? be it yourself. So, what C.S. Lewis he posit he sort of gives two examples of teachers one that sort of is a positive example, and one that is sort of the negative example. The positive example is the father, uh, the Roman father, Telling uh, his yeah. son that it is dolce and decorum. It is sweet and good, sweet and seemly to die for your country. That is uh, a statement, a sentiment that is coming from the Tao. And when the father tells it to his son, the that. father believes it, yeah. and he would have done it, and he sends it to his son, and he expe- spe- expects his son to believe it. And
2: the proof is in the pudding, mm-hmm. right? This kid sees it
1: lived out by his father, by all the men around him, by the mm-hmm. men in the army, right? This is... Yeah. Something he's seen. is giving the best of what he has to his son, and um, that is a propagation of the Tao. That is a passing down of virtue from father to son, from older generation to younger generation. The improper way of doing this is sitting down and saying, what kind of social results do I want in my populace? Well, it would be pretty advantageous if some of our students believed that dying for the United States was very helpful. So I am going to... Tailor my lesson plans to telling my students that dying for your country is a helpful thing. Oh, I'm never going to do that myself. Um, but I think it's going to be very helpful if we can have at least some of the population uh, believe this. So, and what what is wow. that? That is propaganda. Yeah. That's what that is. Um, and that is an on the nose propaganda. And we're all, Thomas, you're reacting to this Sorry, like that, was, that is gross, wow, yeah. and because it is gross. Um, but 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 there is propaganda. where we we've. We can look back on old propaganda posters mm-hmm. and realize, like, look at that crazy, crazy. propaganda. That would never work. Yeah. Um, but um, and I, I do. I even think that we don't even have eyes to see it. Yeah. Now it's 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 hard, um, it's, which is why studying history is important. But that that idea where the teacher is doing it maybe without caring for the student or just doesn't believe it himself or herself, yeah. but is doing it because of some kind of other stated objective is, um, not only, um, wrong and moral students can smell it a mile away and they will mm-hmm. realize that you are feeding them a giant bag of bologna. So, so here's the, here's the
2: quote. He says there are only, he, he, he gives you the Roman and then he says, there are only two courses open to Gaius and Titius from my copy. This is on page 18. We are all three reading from different copies. Different ones. Right. Uh, Either they must go the whole way and debunk this sentiment like any other, or must set themselves to work to produce from outside a sentiment which, which they believe to be of no value to the pupil and which may cost him his life, because it is useful to us, the survivors, that our young men should feel it. If they embark on this course, the difference between the old and the new education will be an important one, where the old initiated the new merely conditions. The old dealt with its pupils as grown birds deal with young birds when they teach them to fly. The new deals with them more as the poultry keeper deals with young birds, making them thus or thus for purposes of which the birds know nothing. In a word, the old was a kind of propagation, men transmitting manhood to men. The new is merely propaganda. Mm -hmm. So they have been, Gaius and Titius have been debunking every sentiment about stuff, Mm -hmm. but In the middle of World War II, which is when you said these speeches were given, if we would like our young men to die, we cannot decide that it is good for them and then make this the only thing we don't debunk, try to give them a feeling about a situation that we have decided is good for us, the people who live, and then try to condition it into the young when we have debunked everything else, right? So if we spend our time carving out the chests of men, right, that spirit that we've talked about in the tripartite soul... We cannot decide one or two things that we think are advantageous and then give those back to them in a conditioning form. It's just not going to work.
1: That's right. So um, I mean, if uh, it is a it is a teaching with skin in the game, if you want to put it in that sense, because hmm. the teacher themselves need to not only believe it but also be growing in it and forming virtue in their own souls. Um, I cannot teach my students or expect my students to be more charitable if I am not wanting charity in my own life, or if I'm not actively seeking out charity in my own life, and looking for examples. Authenticity, and uh, yeah, and skin in the game. Which
2: is gonna mean humility. Like, I I have never met a teacher that is a perfect man. I'm sorry, gentlemen. Uh, What? (laughs) And I'm I'm not perfect myself, and so if I want to teach this to students, students can smell inauthenticity and mm-hmm. hip, hypocrisy, mm-hmm. right? Th- they know I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes in the classroom. And so the only way that I can be an example to them is to acknowledge my failures and then yet encourage them towards the goods that I myself pursue, mm-hmm. right? So knowledge, charity,
1: all, all the virtues we talk about. Yeah. Never let a good failure go to waste as a teacher. It's always good. Uh, you can use it as an example. Um, so, one of our earliest podcasts, we talked about the tripartite soul. Um, brief refresher: uh, Plato posits that the soul is divided into three parts. Uh, there's the rational part, which commands and thinks. There's the spirited part, which acts. That is the soul. That is the part of the soul that has willpower and action. And then there's the appetitive part, which feels and desires. Um, Lewis says that the reason why this chapter is called Men Without Chests is because he says what Gaius and Titius are doing with that debunking is that they are hollowing out the chest of their students. And what he means is they're hollowing out um, that capacity um, to act because uh, stable sentiments will require action. When um, If we're talking about this courage uh, metaphor, dying for one's country mm-hmm. like uh, the Romans and, and so uh, Lewis says that if you give someone the tool to debunk everything, um, how can you expect any kind of virtue from that person? They they don't right. they they won't have it. And so he calls them men without chests because they are just heads. They have just the ability to debunk, and then, and then they're and then just appetites. appetites. So it's they debunk
2: everything, and then they are ruled by their desires, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't have this. So the chest is also the mediator between the. The mind and the desires, right? Mm-hmm. It's the thing that chooses what's
1: what's Between good and helps to control cerebral man and visceral. man. You can man. think
2: of it kind of like the will, and if the will is trained in a certain way, it will repeatedly go that direction.
1: Mm-hmm. Discipline, yeah. Um, and I mean, is there not a better def- descriptor of modern man than someone who can explain away everything with pithy intellect, but is but is uh, ruled by their desires? I mean, yeah. that is that is the modern world that we live in, um, and. Uh, the, the training of the spirited soul um, is um, a great task of what we're doing at this school. And it's a great task of sort of the classical education movement. Uh, when we say we are trying to re- uh, train kids, when we are trying to create virtue, grow virtue in the hearts of students, this is what we mean. Um, future podcasts, and we'll talk about how you do that with books, mm. and how you do that with history, and how you can do that with, um, with talking about literature. And my uh, plug, for, oh, Paideia has already happened, but my Paideia talk that I gave last week. Um, <laughs> Wait, this, this is going up
2: tomorrow? After, no, this is
1: going up post-Paideia. This, this podcast? This podcast, no, no. Or, um, this not. podcast is going up tomorrow, isn't it? No, it's no. not.
2: Um,
0: Oedipus was going up.
1: Oedipus oh, good, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Part,
0: I'm very confused about um, yeah, Anyway, but, but future podcast,
1: we'll talk about how uh, an English class grows virtue in this way uh, um, uh, by the sort of the, the training of, of the spirited soul. Um, but that is so Lewis's um, uh, first chapter, Men Without Chests, as he says, you know, this modern problem that we have is that we basically you know, castrate horses and demand them to give us uh, baby horses. Geldings. Geldings. And they, they, they're not. Uh, they're, we, we, aren't, we are... Fools? F- well, we, we ourselves are fools if we think we're going to get... Uh, hey! <laughs> that was, that was good. Um, No. Uh, yeah, we're not. So if we are hollowing out, if we're giving students, if we're only giving students tools to debunk sentiments, and then when the situation arises where we need right action... And we don't get right action. We have no one to blame but ourselves. Um, So we have no one to blame but yeah, the way that we've that we've been we've been raising. So, so if this
0: was true when Lewis was writing, hey, yeah, yeah, is it just that many more times true now?
1: Uh, I I would suppose so. I mean, I, I different now that we are as a connected global society, the cultures are all going to be influencing each other, whereas, like, you could say maybe England was farther down this line than the, Mer- than the United States was post-World War II, or you can say that different cultures have ebbed and flowed. Um, um, Rome became sort of decadent and amoral, and then, and then um, um, you have the rise of sort of Christian virtue and morality coming in. So um, these things will sort of flow Uh, I think we are naive to say that the entire world is like going to hell in a handbasket because who knows, maybe, maybe, uh, in sub-Saharan or maybe in, uh, like uh, the subcontinent of India, like the stable sentiments are, are, are better cultivated in the hearts and minds of the citizenry than they are in the Christian West. I don't know, or they are in the West. Um, I, I think people will very immediately gravitate towards, um, everything's going bad. Um, and I don't know if that's. Necess- I mean, I often fall into that trap as well, but um, I would sort of caution against that completely saying that we're way worse than we were 70 years ago. Can I read this
0: last paragraph? Oh it so good. Or you want. Does someone else want to? We're at 45. we're good. Okay. And all the time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. That's so good. Yeah. Man. It's good. I mean, I, it I turns know. out guys weird. C.S. Lewis can write. Isn't
2: that shocking? I almost want to read the whole man. It's, it's fantastic. It's easy to think of him only as the writer of Narnia, but dude was the literature chair at Oxford, right? Mm-hmm. For a long time. Mm-hmm. Used to read stuff. He was in, at like, Oxford and Cambridge English, in and, his career. Like that guy does not mess
1: around sure. and he can write like a champion. Um, I would, it is tempting to think that maybe in a church society, uh, at a class, at a Christian school, or in our churches, that we are kind of immune to this kind of thing. But there was—I was at my uh, my in-laws in Dallas, and they had a, ta- a book on their table. It was obviously like a small group book or a book that was maybe their their Bible study was reading. It was one of those sort of Christian books that are kind of self-helpy. Yeah. And I can't remember the title, and I sort of thumbed through it, and it was basically like. What we need is discipline. If you want to grow as a Christian, you need discipline. And it was telling all these sorts of things about the disciplined person and and applying yourself and getting grit and determination to do these sorts of things, um, and um, which I I agree with. Um, but then we, you should all should always sort of cast our eyes to well, how do we actually talk about? Uh, life with God in our churches? How, how, how easy have we made things in our, in, our con- in, in churches? How much do we ask of congregants in a worship service yeah. uh, in, in, in their, you know, um, uh, this is a conversation we've been having at our school, which is, all right, we have gone from being a scrappy campus on different schools, on different locations around the city and being, you know, uh, sharing spaces and uh, broken photocopiers and all these kinds of things to our own campus, a beautiful place, we are you know nervous that we may lose that sort of gritty scrappy uh, way that has um, that has defined us for so long. Um, I don't know it's just um how do you keep those right sentiments encultured in, in a group of people? Oh, I um, think we
2: mesh, we make the freshmen start in the fields
1: and they have to work their way <laughs> that's into right. the That's right. Yeah. 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 And like you wanna you wanna mm-hmm. come inside, you earn gotta it. earn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we make them build like a stone fence that we don't actually need, but we tell and then, them. <laughs> when they're
0: done, we knock it yeah. over and then bring it in. <laughs> but I uh, will uh, say, um, we had our student congress, so our student leader retreat last week and I um, made the poor students like stay here at the campus, even though it was like sleeping on um, cold hard floor, those poor children, but the creativity they had of like, they see the 97 acres or whatever it is as this opportunity for them to do something with it. Um, and that is very exciting to see the fruit of what Graham is talking about. And then given the opportunity that is this campus, like, I don't know, we will continue that. Um, we, they still have opportunities to have an impact on this campus, but now it's almost more opportunity because it's now actually our land that mm-hmm. they can do that on. It was just, it was it was really exciting to be with them for a week. Anyway, a so weekend. that
1: is the uh, first chapter of the Abolition of Man, is where Lewis is saying these sort of throwaway sentiments, so these sort of almost philosophical, pardon me, premises that we put in our textbooks, um, have formative power, and we need to be very cautious of the way that we present and talk about material. Oh, when so and so when Romeo's, or when so and so says that the love between Romeo and Juliet was um, a tragic and sad thing it's just that's just their their opinion on it and you can sort of believe whatever you want about them form your own opinions um um, that that has a lot of that that little heuristic that you've given the student has such corrosive power that if that you do i mean we need to be able to look at sentiments and debunk them at some point you need to have that skill set you need to be able to see through sentimentality um but you also need to have the skill set of feeling the right things uh, when, when the occasion calls for it. And that's pretty. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Anyway, there's more I could talk about this with, with Paradise Lost, but I think that's sort of a good... Well, we'll we're going to go through the three chapters of The Abolition of Man over the next couple of podcasts. So that was Men Without Chess, and the next one is called The Tao. And we're going to talk more about um, the sort of the philosophy and the, the justification that Lewis has for this... Um, you can Ooh. call it natural theology, you can call it objective morality, you could call it, uh, uh, it's been called many different things. Uh, he calls it the Tao because uh, in um, uh, the Tao, Taoism, it was just it was just the way, it was just the way things were, mm. and you either conformed to it or didn't conform to I it. I was thinking, love this chapter.
0: Yeah. It's so fantastic. Cool. All right, and
1: that's going to be next time. Cool.
0: Awesome. So this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at stuff c l s s. C-A-L-stuff. Dot gov. Still not right, but getting (laughs) further away from it, you can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. Any, I don't know, y'all got quotes? Y'all got any We've read a lot of
1: quotes in this podcast. Yeah, we
0: have. We gotta
2: bring back the commonplace book. We gotta bring that commonplace book back. We, apparently, we haven't been getting anything wrong, except, of course, about Catherine, mm-hmm. who yeah. didn't care for the goats. No. Mm-hmm. The guy was a goat shearer. Mm-hmm. Shearer. Oh, yeah. shearer. no. Yeah.
0: It was such a bummer. But we were close. Mm-hmm. We'll get it one of these days. Catherine, mm-hmm. we're sorry. Yeah. We'll, we'll really try to nail it. Mm-hmm. Maybe Next if time. you wrote it down. <laughs> that would be really helpful. All right. So I think that is everything from us. So for Graham, AJ, and Thomas, this is Classical Stuff You Should Know. Bye. G- goodbye.
1: Bye.